And no, this is not an early script of the Mandalorian with all this talk of the child. We're talking about Jesus and the Magi from Matthew chapter 2. And the sermon titled this week, intentionally semi-provocative as to not boil your blood too soon, we who must die demand a miracle. And what miracle is this? What a strange story. Uh, This uh, last weekend, we had dinner with a friend. You guys remember that, having dinner with people? Many, many moons ago, when we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to school, right? We had dinner with a a friend, a member of this church, a young lady some of you know named Nicole. It's a wonderful dinner. We kept our space and we enjoyed good food and good drink. And after dinner, as I like to do, you can't spend too much time at the table. It gets uncomfortable. Your stomach is full. You need to go to the couch and be truly involved in the ways of the Middle East, right? Get in touch with the the context of Jesus and recline on the couch. And we're sitting there and there's the Christmas tree and atop the tree, the star. And as we talked and enjoyed company, I kept just looking at the stars. I was thinking about this text. The lights are dim. We had a nice fire in the fireplace. It was warm. And there's the star above all shining down on our conversation and our fellowship. And it got me thinking about why. Why does Matthew include this story about the the Magoi, the Magi? It's not in Mark's gospel. Mark's a man of action. He jumps right into baptisms and sword fights. It's not in John's gospel. John is a philosopher, theologian. And so he begins with this beautiful, erudite prologue. But interestingly, it's not in Luke's gospel. Luke's the historian, right? Luke writes to dear old Theophilus to tell him, you know, the story as accurately as possible. And even Luke, who has a... A two and a half chapter long birth narrative doesn't include this story about the men who come from the east to offer their gifts to Jesus. And this is both strange and illuminating because Matthew's trying to cue us into something. He's trying to raise our awareness about a reality, a reality that has what I'd like to call a double focus. That is, it was a reality for 2,000 years ago, but remains one for us today. And so now to quote several lines uh, from the poem, for the time being, a Christmas oratorio by the well-known Anglo-American poet W.H. Auden. He wrote this poem, a Christmas oratorio, during a time of deep personal loss and darkness, where the realities of Advent were visceral to him. Hear the words, Alone, alone about a dreadful wood of conscious evil runs a lost mankind, dreading to find its father, lest it find the goodness it has dreaded is not good. Alone, alone about our dreadful wood. Where is that law for which we broke our own? Where now that justice for which flesh resigned her hereditary right to passion, mind, his will to absolute power, gone, gone. Where is that law for which we broke our own? The pilgrim way, relate to that, has led to the abyss. Was it to meet meet such grinning evidence? We left our richly adored ignorance. Was the triumphant answer to be this? The pilgrim way? 
has led us to the abyss? We who must die then demand a miracle. How could the eternal do a temporal act? The infinite become a finite fact. Nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. Nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. So joining with Auden, we have the words of Fleming Rutledge, the New Testament scholar. She says, Advent, the season of Advent is designed by God to show us that the meaning of Christmas is diminished. It's mere sentimentality. It's diminished to the vanishing point of materialism and sentiment if, if we are not willing to take a fearless inventory of the darkness. And so we cry out during Advent, God, help us. We demand a miracle. Nothing can save us. That is possible. And so the story goes, this miraculous story of the wise men who come from the east. And it's our story of being drawn by the Lord and pursued to the ends of the earth, even to Santa Fe. Why are there people in Santa Fe, New Mexico in 2020 who know and love Jesus and are loved by him? Stand in awe and wonder at the fact. Advent finds us then longing for the impossible. To squeeze, as it were, light out of the darkness around us. To be saved. Saved from our sin, saved from the wrath of God, fully known, fully loved, forgiven, but saved unto new life, new spirit, freedom. Freedom even in the most difficult of circumstances that some of you are facing even now. Ah, but treachery, we can't save ourselves. Double treachery, we are often so weary of trying. So weary. So not only do we need to be saved from sin and saved unto new life, but now, in this time of now and not yet, the beginning of the kingdom, but the fullness not yet thereof, we need rest. We need God's rest. So why the Magi of Matthew chapter 2? Perhaps to show us that for God, all things are possible. And for you in Christ Jesus, all things are possible. And I believe the text gives us three directions, as it were, three directions as we follow this star. And of course, I had to do a super nerd dad pun and give them the acronym of GPS. Badoom. All right. GPS, our groaning, proper posture, and awe and surprise. Groaning, posture, and surprise. The text really does begin with groaning, the groaning of God's people. Matthew's magi, if they show us anything, that the prophecies are indeed being fulfilled, remind us that we need this Emmanuel. We need God with us. We need a king to come and reign so that in our disappointments we have the hope of victory. And so you're in this text. We are all in the groaning. In fact, I think we all have much that we're groaning about right now. I don't mean complaining necessarily. I mean longing. Advent and the Psalms and the story of Jesus are there so that we don't need to be chided and shamed for our longings. Suck it up. Rugged individualism. Men don't complain or talk about how they're feeling. No, indeed, Advent is the opposite of that. We are 
allowed to groan, for creation itself is groaning, and the world gives us much to groan about. Consider uh, the children of Israel. They're weary. It's been 400 years. Can you imagine if you've been waiting for God's promises for that many generations? They are really weary. I mean, should we still pray? Should we still ask? Should we still dare to hope? I mean, we've, we've prayed about this grandkid or this kid or this spouse or this job. We prayed for a really long time. Should we keep going? You can imagine that the cloud of skepticism begins to set in. You can hear the groans of indifference, whatever, whatever, whatever. And then silence, 400 years of silence. Where is God? Why has he not spoken? Why has he not come? Why is he not fulfilling his promises? Where is he? And if you feel that this morning, whether it be the silence of God, the skepticism that he might exist or indeed might answer, this story is an invitation to you to listen, to groan, and perhaps to be surprised. So we have the weary children of Israel. We also have the wickedness of Herod. And this really can't be understated, especially in Matthew's account. Next week, John has the unfortunate task of preaching on Herod's murder of the innocents. And it's not going to be a, you know, a dour, downer sort of a text. But it's the reality of a man who is wicked. He is the enemy. He is the, the enemy in Matthew's text. And in fact, he is... A, for all intents and purposes, like a second pharaoh. You see what Matthew's doing there? Matthew and his Jewishness, Matthew retelling the story of the freeing of the slaves. Herod is like a second pharaoh. Not only does he kill members of his own family and the innocents, not only does he build temples for his own glory, but it seems that every move he makes, especially with these wise men, is to stay in control to stay ahead of God's game, to know what's going on so that he can manipulate the pieces on the chessboard to his own end. It's the same lie of the garden. It's the same root of sin that's in all of our hearts. Sin means any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. It just means that we're lawbreakers. It means we want to be a law unto ourselves. That's autonomy, autonoma, self-law. It means we want to make life and our own selves in our own image, not God's. And so under the heavy hand of Herod and his wickedness, the people groan. Uh, the third group we have in the text, of course, are the scribes and the religious leaders. And here Matthew points to our so often mismanaged expectations about what God's going to do. And here's the great irony of it, folks. Don't miss this. This is crazy and humbling and challenging to me is that they don't miss it because they're not religious enough. They miss it because they're too religious. Their religiosity has clouded their expectations about who God is and what he's going to do. They are those who work and strive and believe that in working and striving, they will somehow earn the favor of God and somehow God's favor will be what they expect it to be. This is how religious people in self-righteousness and religious pride so often fall into, and we all do, making God a means to their end and not the other way around. These scribes and leaders, and I'm not, by the way, I'm not 
mocking them or trying to caricature or build up a straw man. We all would have done the same thing. The three of you in this room who have been smart enough in the Old Testament to be scribes would have done the same thing. But they're not there to, to, to bow, to, to bow at what God is doing in this upside-down kingdom, and this upside-down baby king. I love the, the words that we just heard from Bill in that song. Tiny heart whose blood will save us. Yeah, that's not part of the plan. We, we need a warrior, poet, prophet like David, one who can pick up and wisely wield a sword and overthrow this Roman slavery. That's what they were expecting. And that's why in the weariness, the wickedness, and the working, this groaning is our problem as well. Because nothing can save us that is possible. So what should we do? Well, the good news is that all we can bring is nothing. And all God can give is everything. But as we come, as we come with our groaning, we also must come without expectations. Tim Keller in his wonderful little book on Christmas puts it this way, when you come to Christ the Lord, you must drop your conditions. You have to give up the right to say, I will obey you if. I will do this if. As soon as you say, I will obey you if, that is not obedience at all. You are saying to the Lord, thank you, you're my advisor, not my king. I will be happy to take your recommendations as long as it makes me happy and fulfilled. And I might even do some of them. No, no. If you want Jesus with you, you have to give up the right to self-determination. Self-denial is an act of rebellion against our late modern culture of rugged individualism and self-assertion. Yes, we must give up the right. And that is precisely what we are called to. Nothing less. And so we groan. Because it's easy to talk about giving up those rights and laying down those conditions. It's very hard to do. So what makes the Magi different then? The thing that sets them apart in this text is their worship. The intention and longings of their hearts. Not to come and get gold and frankincense and myrrh, but to give it a proper posture. So our groaning moves us to ask that question from the text. What's different about these guys? And amazingly, Matthew, the most Jewish of all the gospel writers, meaning he pays the most attention to how Christ fulfills the Old Testament prophecies, he's the one who chooses foreigners. Foreign, weird, astrological, astro-theologian science guys to be the ones to show the people of God how to demand a miracle by worship. And so, of course, in their posture, we see three ways. The first is that they walk by faith. Where are these guys from? First of all, we shouldn't use the word orient, okay, from the east. East probably means Persia or Babylon, perhaps as far as eastern Iran. I think there's a bit of a scholarly consensus around Babylon. And were there three of them? We don't know. Might have been two, might have been 20. We get three from the number of gifts, but we don't know how many there were. And were they kings? 
They weren't kings, but the reason we get the idea of kingship is because the Psalms tell us that uh, there will be those who come from foreign kingdoms to worship the Messiah. So perhaps they're from Babylon. Well, why in the world would they follow this star? Well, perhaps they were influenced by their Jewish neighbors who were still in Babylon, who never returned with Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. And they'd known of these Jewish communities. They'd read the Jewish scriptures. They knew the prophecies in Micah and in Numbers that a star would come. And they're clearly those who are seeking wisdom, employing all of their faculties, looking to the stars with logic and reason, with hope, and yet still they walk by faith because they're not sure. You, you can just try to imagine these guys, let's say there were three of them, leaving. Leaving from Babylon, an 800-mile journey from Babylon to Jerusalem. How are you going to explain that to your wife? Even if you are a renowned magi of the Babylonian empire, babe, I will see you in like a half a year. Hope you can hold down the fort with the kiddos. Why? There's a star in the sky. Okay, that reminds me of that, you know, funny episode between the two older folks, the older, the, the witch and the guy and the princess bride bickering back and forth between each other. And so they walk by faith a long way, not sure, not understanding everything, but showing us the proper posture of worship. Because it's not that they understand everything, but they trust what they know. They trust the promises they know. One New Testament scholar puts it this way, the wonder of Christmas then. I mean, this is shocking. It's not as shocking to us. We've heard the story umpteen times. But to the original readers, folks, the wonder of Christmas is that pagan, astrologer, magician types are transformed as they walk by faith toward God's star to worship the incarnate divine son as they read and respond to the ancient words of another pagan seer, Balak, in Numbers, uh, chapter 24. That's where we get the prophecy of the star and the scepter. Indeed, this is good news. This is how God works. This is how God upends everything. That lost sinners of all kinds throughout the world can come and worship the king. Their posture is one of walking by faith. It's also one of bowing, bowing down. Unlike Herod, who arches his back, who stiffens his neck, we're told in verse 11 that they fall down. Look at how they come to Jesus. Not with demands. Not with you have to do this. Do it now. Look how far we've come. It's been a long walk. You know, and not to get some sort of blessing, some talisman, some crystal from Jesus that will provide just enough energy to remind them that the star isn't really about, you know, God and his glory. It's about that, that inner light that burns so brightly within us all. You're a special little star. None of that. They don't come to demand. They don't come to get their fortune told. They convict us all with the proper response of humble awe that results in prostrate worship. And again, in Matthew's gospel, this is deeply polemical. It's subversive of his culture and his time. 
because it's the Magi, these foreigners, these Gentiles even. I mean, I don't know if you guys know many Gentiles, but be careful. I see a few out there right now, and I have my eye on you. I mean, these Gentiles, they, they probably didn't even look Jewish. Can you imagine? These are the ones that God chooses to fall and worship the king when the erudite religious scholars and Herod himself completely miss it? And so we're shown this is the posture. This is the posture, even in your groaning. Walk by faith, bow before the king, and lastly, they offer gifts. They don't come making demands. They don't come, as we so often do, to the things in our life on the condition of, I've done my part, now you do yours. Talk about this in marriage counseling a lot, right? It's not, it can't be 50-50. So it takes about 30 seconds to realize that the person you're married to is only doing 48%. And you are doing 52, so we have a problem. Can't be 50-50, can't even be 100-100. Because that's still based on the condition of your perception of whether or not they're fulfilling their end of the, bar the bargain. No, it can only be, and it only is in the gospel, 100-0. This is why they don't come making demands or say, you know, gimme, I need, I need, this is what I want, this is why we're here. They, they come not as those in want, but as worshipers. Not as those who tell Jesus what their reward should be, but instead those who receive the reward that comes through the bowing and the worshiping. They are those who remind us that the star in the sky is not about you and I being special little star snowflakes with a burning light in our hearts. And the Christmas story isn't sentimentality. Instead, the star is outside of us. The good news comes outside of us. It is proclaimed over us. It is announced to us. It is extrinsic so that we cannot work or earn or merit in any way. But it is the gift of God for all who believe. The big picture in this posture is not only their worship, but the very word of God itself, which is why Matthew draws us again to the prophecies. Jesus fulfills all. The prophecy in Micah chapter 5, that the Messiah would come from the town of David, Bethlehem. Here we have Jesus. In Ezekiel 34, that the people of Israel would finally get a shepherd Finally, one who will lead them to the truth, who will do what they could not do, save themselves. And indeed, fulfilling the Psalms, that it would be the Gentiles who would bring wealth and worship to the nation of Israel. And Matthew has set us up now to just stand at the foot of this event, at the foot of the birth of the child, at the foot of the cross, at the foot of the life and the justice and the love of Jesus, at the foot of the resurrection with awe and surprise. Why is this text in your Bibles? Because Matthew wants us to treasure Christ and what Jesus has come to do, to be a light, not only for 
geopolitical, ethnic Jews, and not only for the good and the religious, and not only for folks like Herod who want control, and not only for the weary, but for all the nations. So we stand in awe and surprise. And there's sort of three events here that I think are really intended to well that up within us. The first is a cosmic event, the star. Now, of course, there's been much ink spilled on the question. Was it a supernova, perhaps a comet, perhaps the aligning of two planets, Jupiter and another? I can't remember. Sorry, Dad, I'm getting in trouble for that later. We don't know. All right, we don't know. What we do know is that all of creation is in on what God is doing. And why? Because all of creation is groaning. Paul tells us from the time of the fall, all creation is groaning for, for the redemption that will come through the Messiah. So I wonder if this morning as you look around your life and your job and your relationships, does the world so often feel like a miss? Well, if it does, you're right. <laughs> you're right. And the promise of the text is that in this cosmic event where creation groans, God is reminding us that he is sovereign and in control of all things. The challenge of the text is that you and I and everyone we know must choose a star. Either the God who knows you by name and loves you by the finished work of Jesus, his son, or you get to be your own star like Herod. As William Lane Craig put it, we have the choice between Stalin or the saints. Either get one life to live and that's it. Power, pleasure, rule, dominion, get it. Because this life is almost over. Or the saints of God who are loved by God. The choice of the star is before us. It's a cosmic event. It's also a global event. I've mentioned on several occasions now that the Magi are foreigners who give us a clue that as the Gentiles are the first to come to worship, that God has a plan in the death and resurrection of his son to bring in people from every tribe and tongue and nation around the globe. You know, I love this morning that as we worship, we have brothers and sisters in Cuba, in India, in China. I, I know the news has y'all worked up about different countries. Me too. I know you feel it a little bit. There's like certain countries that two years ago you didn't have beef with and now you sort of do. Now you kind of hear the name of it mentioned and you're like, I don't know if I like those people anymore. Don't you? God is at work in all those places right now. Even this morning as we worship, our brothers and sisters around the world are worshiping with us. Not based on their ethnicity, not, not based on their language, not based on their social status or class, but on the gospel alone. It's amazing that in the birth narrative of Jesus, Caesar gets busy, doesn't he? What does Caesar do? He starts counting up his people. I'm going to send everybody back home for a census so that I, Caesar, can sit back and count up all my subjects. And when I hear the final number of how many subjects I have, I'm going to feel really good about myself. And even though Caesar was the king of kings and lord of lords, the empire of the entire known world at the time, what a small, myopic view. What a small view of God. What a small view of the gospel. As Caesar is counting his subjects, God is gathering in the nations 
to places and people in space and time that Caesar couldn't even begin to imagine. And so from Ligonier Ministries, the wise men and their mission are highly significant. Not just the men, but their mission, their global mission, because God has promised Israel that their restoration and redemption after exile would be accompanied by an influx of Gentile nations into the covenant community. We see this in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. Though they are perhaps motivated in part by superstition, the wise men are the first Gentiles to seek out Jesus. And they demonstrate that God fulfills all his promises to all peoples of the earth. A global event. And I think these magi teach us something, folks. And that is that, that even right now in this strange time of isolation and weirdness, we should remember that there's a sense of urgency here. That the Lord is on the move. And that when all people groups in the world have heard, Jesus will come back. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. If we pray that prayer, let us be a part of its answer. COVID means that we just can't do things the same way. But it also means we have new opportunities to share the gospel. I want you and me to think about the people we love and care about. They're not projects. They're people made in God's image. They're our, our neighbors. What creative ways can we reach out to them and love them during this time? Because a lot of folks are groaning deeply and silently during these moments of loneliness. And the Magi teach us to have the urgency of God's global plan. Lastly, it's a saving event. Of course, you know, the biggest surprise of all, the biggest surprise of all is Jesus, who is the Christ. Yeshua, the Savior, the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah. The biggest surprise of all to the world is that God didn't come like a Herod or a Caesar, which he would have been well within his rights to do. But instead, it is God himself who takes on flesh. It is Jesus himself who walks by faith, a lonely, bloody road, even to the cross. It is Jesus himself who bows, even bows his head to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is Jesus who brings his offerings. The king is the gift. The shepherd becomes the humble servant. The story of Matthew's gospel, the fulfillment of Advent, is that God has done everything in his son to love the unlovely, to make them lovable, to draw us to himself, and to fulfill his promises. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, when Christianity says that God loves man, it means that God loves man. Not that God has some disinterested or indifferent concern for our welfare. But that in awful and surprising truth, we are objects of his love. You asked for a loving God? You got one. The great spirit you so lightly invoked, the Lord of terrible aspect, is present. Knows you by name. Holds and sustains you by the word of his power. This is not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way. 
nor the cold philanthropy of some sort of politician, nor the care of a dinner host who merely feels responsible for the comfort of his guests, but the consuming fire himself, the love that made the worlds, the love that took on flesh, the love that came as a baby, died on the cross, and rose again to conquer death. So let us stand in awe and surprise. Even in your groaning, do you think God's done with you? In your isolation, is there no hope? No dinners to go to or to host? The Magi, the star, the story, they remind us that God is not done with us. He has surprises in store for us yet. And into that, we are invited to trust. Nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. Jesus is it, and he fulfills all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, glory be to your name. Thank you, Jesus, for this wonderful story, true story, which Matthew's included in his gospel. And thank you for the beautiful four-sided diamond that is the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All the same story, but told in different ways to point us to Christ, that we might treasure Christ. That in our groaning, by your grace, Lord, we might have the posture of worship. Oh, and may we worship and realize so deeply that we are giving nothing but receiving everything we stand awe and wonder at the surprises you have for us in your Son. That we are hidden with Christ and God, even during this strange time. Surprise us with your love and send us out to be that surprise for those around us in need. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.